First reading comes from the book of Hosea. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God, and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind, and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah, and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. The word of the Lord. Good morning again and welcome to Church of the Cross. My name is Peter. I'm also one of the priests here and just echo Nick's welcome of you, especially if you're a guest or visitor. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The quote on your service sheet this morning comes from, a, the first quote, comes from a recent podcast put out by the writer and editor of the online news service Vox, a man by the name of Ezra Klein. In the podcast from which that quote comes, Klein debates and discusses the power and effect of technology to capture our attention, our focus, to hook us and not let go. Klein's deeply uncomfortable with the way our technologies have so successfully drawn us in and in his estimation made us somewhat helpless. Beyond the specifics of our historical moment, our smartphone age, the age in which we live, Klein's quote there gets at a question of orientation. Around whom or what will our attention, our lives be oriented? To whom or what will we give our focus, our hearts, our minds? For whom, for what, will we wait? Our reading this morning from Hosea chapters 11 and 12, and indeed the whole book through which we've been journeying these past weeks, puts forward two options, two possible answers to these questions, two options before the people of God. For whom will the people of God wait? To whom will they give their attention? Our passage this morning is in many ways a summary of the earlier portions of the book of Hosea. It's restating and reminding us of the content that has come earlier. It's highlighting this repeated issue. The first verses of our reading this morning re-describe the situation. They bring the language of charge indictment in verse 2. That's language we've seen before earlier in the book. And the charge is the Lord, Yahweh, is surrounded with lies. He's compassed by falsehood. And even as Judah is described as being in a particular place different from Israel, the emphasis here is on the universal failure of God's people. Even as the two kingdoms are in somewhat different places, all have fallen short, all have failed. There's a failure of trust, a failure to wait, to orient their lives toward the Lord. 
Each week in our worship, and one of my favorite moments in our worship, we proclaim the Lord is here and his spirit is with us. We just did that. There's something so very joyful about that. Emmanuel, God with us. There's something sobering, however, too. A holy God among his people. Friends of ours have in their home this wonderful wood carving above their kitchen table. It reads, Christ is present in this home, the silent participant in every moment, every conversation. The Lord is with us. Consider that reality as you act and move and bear his name. I have to admit, however, that I've never before considered what this presence means for God, as our reading this morning invites us to think. That for him to be with his people in the midst of their unfaithfulness, their failure, means he's surrounded. He's compassed by lies and deceit. There's something tragic, mournful even, that this language conjures up. There's something grievous for God about the sin of God's people about our sin. Like so much of scripture, Hosea puts the choice before his people, before God's people, in stark binary terms. There's light and darkness. There's life and death. There's the beast and the lamb, the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of heaven. Choose this day. At the beginning of our reading, this negative first option is described, is put forward. The faithlessness, the deceit is identified. This indictment is expanded upon. The people of God have oriented their lives. They've set their attention around the wrong sort of things. They've set their trust. They wait for the wrong sort of things. Chapter 12, verse 1, describes the problem as the people's pursuit of the wind. What an evocative image. They're feeding on the wind. The word for feeding there is related to shepherding, pasturing, or grazing sheep. Some translations actually put it that the people are trying to shepherd the wind. Whether feeding or shepherding, it's a picture of futility of seeking to be sustained by or in control of something you cannot contain, you cannot be sustained by, you cannot be in control of. In Greek mythology, the king of Corinth, Sisyphus, is punished, punished for his deceit, his his lies, and he's condemned to eternally roll this large stone up a hill, only for at the very top it to roll all the way back to the bottom and him to start again. It's a picture of this eternal futility. I was trying to think of a contemporary option. The only one I could come up with was when you like toss the ball to your dog and they don't want to return it to you and you're chasing after that dog and it's only at the point where they're like, I'm exhausted or I want to give it back that they give it back to you. It's futile chasing after them, chasing the dog, chasing the wind, trying to herd cats. The specific futile action is explained in in verse 1. It's expanded upon, as Joe Ho described last week. In this period of Israel's history, the nation found themselves in the midst of these great empires, Assyria and Egypt. And in the face of these powers, the people felt a threat. Their wealth, their status, 
Their sense of flourishing was under threat. They were frightened and insecure. In efforts to secure themselves, Hosea describes how they're seeking to establish, to maintain relationships with these powers that they might guarantee their safety, their security, their wealth. The reference to oil in verse 1 suggests trade or gifts of palm oil to Egypt as an enticement. That both powers are named suggests this kind of real politic calculation in Israel. This double dealing or playing off of relationships with Egypt against relationships with Syria in order to press their advantage, gain their advantage. And what the prophet is specifically calling out here is this particular posture, this particular orientation that suggested that the people saw in these relationships, in these managed arrangements, they could secure themselves, that this was the primary means by which they were made safe and secure. Their trust, their hope, their waiting was in these relationships. You can imagine what they say, we just need to keep Egypt in our pocket and gain their help. Or as long as we have Assyria on our side, everything is going to be okay. They wait upon Egypt, they wait upon Assyria, they put their hope in horses, chariots, and armies. And it's all a chasing after the wind. In his book on power, entitled Playing God, the writer Andy Crouch offers this sobering picture of the way idolatry plays out in our lives. He writes that idols, which he names as any created thing, a nation, technology, a person, or relationship, that we might turn to and for trust and put our trust in, we might turn to for security in the place of God. Any created thing might be an idol. And he says, all idols begin by offering great things for such a small price. This is the promise of control, the promise of mastery, the promise of safety and security in an insecure world. But Crouch expands on it. He says, all idols then fail more and more consistently to deliver on their original promises all the while ratcheting up the demands. In the end, he writes, they fail completely, even as they make categorical demands. He quotes a psychiatrist who says, idols ask for more and more while giving less and less until they demand everything and give nothing. Feeding on the wind. You can imagine how this might play out in Israel's situation, their real politic calculations. What happens when Egypt demands more oil than Israel can reasonably provide? What happens when Assyria realizes they're dealing with Egypt as well? Israel's in thrall to Egypt as well, Assyria's rival. These vast nations, these large armies, the potential for deceit, for violence is there. And beyond the futility, Hosea links this posture, these relationships, to the multiplication of falsehood and violence. It's not just that feeding on the wind is pointless, is futile, it's that it'll kill you. And before it kills you, it'll make you desperate enough to lie, to cheat, to destroy. In verse 7, the verse just after our reading this morning, Hosea writes that Israel loves to oppress The root of that oppression, that felt need to control, to manipulate, to even brutalize, is found in misaligned trust 
the wrong sort of focus, the disorientation in the life of God's people. Perhaps we can see clearly how this double dealing would result in deceit, in violence even. But it feels pretty far off. In what ways might our own idolatries lead to a multiplication of violence, of falsehood? In John chapter 4, Jesus encounters a situation that illustrates how this might be the case. There in John 4, Jesus is at a well and he encounters this woman. A woman who has had what Jesus names as five husbands while remaining unmarried. Rather than see this woman as simply promiscuous, we might consider her as a single woman in a deeply patriarchal society, as someone who is seeking to make herself secure in a very insecure situation. She needs these relationships. We can empathize with that. We can identify with her in that. Yet in seeking to secure herself in this way, I suspect we can also imagine the potential for violence, for deceit linked to the ways she secures herself. It's the stuff of soap operas and HBO dramas. There's violence, the potential for it. There's the multiplication of deceit. The things through which we seek to gain control, gain mastery, secure ourselves, end up controlling us. And in our desperation, in our insecurity, we multiply falsehood, deceit. We masquerade to demonstrate we actually do have it all together, even as our addictions spiral. Perhaps we seek to control others in some way as a way of confirming in us we're doing okay. We oppress those weaker than ourselves out of our insecurity. This is the outworking of, violent, of idolatry in injustice, destruction, violence, and falsehood. It is waiting, feeding on a vapor, on a breath, chasing the wind. Praise be to God, the Father of Jesus. He has something better for his people. He has something better for us. In contrast to this one way of living, this way of living that the people of Judah and Israel have repeatedly fallen into and are called out for in Hosea, there is the option of return. Return to the Lord. This option is articulated in our final verse of our reading, verse 6. Return, wait for the Lord, for Yahweh, the God of hosts. That title, the God of hosts, is a military term. It's a call to wait, wait for the one who can and does secure you. Wait for the one who has and does reveal himself, comes to the aid of his creation, comes to the aid of his people. Wait for the one who can sustain our hopes and needs, whose spirit, whose breath brings life. In making this call to the people of the Lord, of God, Hosea draws upon their history, and specifically this one figure, Jacob. The story of Jacob is told through the back half of the book of Genesis, and the prophet Hosea here highlights some of it, summarizes some of that story, and he highlights three key moments. Jacob's grasping of his 
twin brother Esau's heel at his birth, referenced in verse 3, his wrestling with the angel of the Lord in verse 4, his striving. And finally, in verses 4 and 5, this remarkable encounter with God at Bethel, this vision, the ladder up and, of, coming from heaven, angels ascending and descending. Jacob, even more than most biblical figures, is an ambiguous character. Even as the father of the nation of Israel, the one who comes to bear the name of their nation, he's a pretty mixed character in the Bible. The root word for Jacob's name is to deceive, and he lives up to his name. One writer describes him as a dyed-in-the-wool crook and double-barreled con artist. I, I don't totally know what that means. <laughs> Sounds like something a Texan might say. But it's clearly not good. You get the gist of it. And Hosea characterizes Jacob's life as one of striving, grasping, seizing, whose life in many ways out of this lack or wound, unloved by his earthly father, preened over by his mother, multiplied deception and violence, seeking to secure himself. It's sometimes said that the original sin of the United States as a people or nation is slavery. And that so much of the strife, the injustice playing out in our national life, whether the shooting in El Paso last week, the death of Michael Brown five years ago this week, or the reality of inequity and inequality are all rooted in some way, born out here, an original stain on the character of the nation. In bringing up Jacob here, Hosea seems to be saying something similar to the people of Israel, demonstrating how the brokenness of their lives, these misaligned hopes and focus, this disorientation, is baked into their life, into who they are. It has deep roots, the impulse to strive, to grasp, to deceive and fight. It's rooted deep within their history, within them, within the people of God. Indeed, within us. Perhaps this morning you can see yourself in Jacob. You have, can see yourself in this picture of chasing after the wind and trusting yourself to things that you've come to see cannot sustain you, cannot deal with the brokenness of your life. In our reading this morning, this reality this stain, this propensity in all of us, in the people of God is called out, it is named, and it does not have the final word. Hosea's brief summary of Jacob's life culminates, it climaxes with his experience at this place called Bethel. At Bethel, God speaks with Jacob, the deceiver. In the language of verse 4, God spoke there with us, a deceiving, idolatrous, waiting for the wrong things people, stained, oriented the wrong way. And in the midst of that deception, in the midst of that striving, that seeking in sinfulness to make ourselves secure, heaven came to earth. As we sung, he meets us where we are. It's so important. We don't have it before us, but the story of Jacob is not the story of him pulling himself up by his bootstraps, getting himself 
clean enough that, the God, that God might intercede in his life. It's in the midst of his deception, his striving, in the midst of the multiplication of falsehood and violence that God's word comes to him. And at Bethel, the one who strives, the one who's multiplied all this brokenness, hears, behold, I am with you. I will keep you. I will not leave you, but will do all that I have promised. You meet me where I am. In Genesis 32, recounting what he heard there, Jacob recalls, Lord, you said to me, return, that I may do you good. And reflecting on it, Jacob says of himself, I'm not worthy of the least of the deeds of steadfast love you have shown and all the faithfulness you have given me. At Bethel, Jacob experiences God's gracious, life-interrupting, life-giving word. And a new way of life is opened up to him. Instead of striving and grasping in futility, instead of securing for himself what he needs... What he longs after is freely given in grace. He's made secure in God, and a a new way to live becomes possible. It opens up for him a way to live lightly and freely, a way in the language of our reading of steadfast love. I will not leave you. A way of justice, even. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord who is with you and for you, who will keep you and be faithful to his promises. Life is the sum total of what we pay attention to, Klein writes. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. Choose this day whom you will serve. Choose this day for whom you will wait. Our reading this morning provides for us, the church, the people of God, a choice. A choice that is only even possible by the grace and goodness of God, the Father of Jesus. Before you and I today is the life-giving, beautiful way of Jesus. The life of steadfast love and justice that he exemplifies and opens up for us. In him, The God who spoke at Bethel has spoken again, definitively, a promise to be with us, with his people, with his creation, to keep them. In him, he has done the most wondrous work of faithfulness and steadfast love, a work we do not deserve. Our reading uses the language of repayment according to our deeds. In Jesus, that repayment God has made to fall upon himself. He has paid the debt that was owed. That we might today turn or return to his life-giving way. Return to him. That we might now live lives of love and justice. Lives for which we were made and called and for which we long. I know so many of you pierced by the brokenness of the world, grieving perhaps the failures of the church, the generations before you of your own life. You long for something more. You long for lives that count, that are lives of justice and steadfast love. The call for you in that place is 
to return to the Lord, to wait upon him. Set your trust again or for the first time. Orient your life toward the hearing, the obeying of his voice. Take courage in a world of distraction, in a world of failure and brokenness, in an insecure world. Take courage and wait for the Lord. This morning, as we do every week, we return to the Lord at this table. We come with our longing. We come with this stain upon us, our histories of striving and grasping, of deceit, of even violence, perhaps. We come having fed on the wind with empty hands. And we feed here on the bread and wine of new life, that which truly satisfies and sustains. At this table, week in, week out, knowing that we will fail, we will fall short, we return and we wait for the Lord. Let us do so today. But I see on your faces, clever people that you are, the questions. What does returning look like? What in its fullness does this way of life look like? And, and how? How can we, how can I, who have this stain, this history of choosing the wrong way, waiting, even this week, for the wrong things, how can I hope to walk in this way, the way of Jesus' new life? How can we hope to return and wait for the Lord? The hints were in our colic that we prayed this morning. The hints are there in our reading by the Lord's help. But for a more complete answer to these questions, well, you'll have to come next week. <laughs> Let's pray. Gracious and almighty God, you are good. You meet us where you are, where we are. You draw near to us, O oh Lord, even in the midst of our lives of brokenness and misaligned love and trust. And I pray right now that lovingly, gently, by your life-giving spirit, you would open our eyes to see the ways that we have waited for the wrong things, the ways we've oriented ourselves toward things that cannot sustain and feed us. And would you draw us again in this moment to yourself, the bread of life. Would you prepare us to receive from you in these deep and empty places of our lives? Would you come in your grace and in your mercy and fill us again that we might walk in your ways, that we might manifest steadfast love and justice as you call us to do? Would you feed us your people Bring life to us, we pray. Amen.